As the long summer was drawing to a close, the Lady May, a sleek, 150-foot-long mega-yacht worth $30 million, was gleaming in the sun, gliding gracefully between the exclusive resorts of the Hamptons and the wealthy, upmarket coast of Connecticut. Owned by a Chinese billionaire, the man sipping coffee on the deck was his rather portly guest of honor, the former chief strategist to the President of the United States of America and alt-right radio ranter, Steve Bannon. Bannon had been summering on a yacht called the Lady May, which belongs to a sort of slightly mysterious Chinese benefactor. Uh, it's a $28 million yacht. And he'd been having a very dolly summer. He'd been sort of doing TV hits from the uh, deck of, of this yacht. And he had this gorgeous tan and this sort of, his, he'd grown his hair out. So he, he looks like he's been on a sort of Grateful Dead tour for uh, six months. But the summering came to an abrupt end. On the 20th of August, a boat owned by the US Coast Guard blocked the Lady May and armed agents stormed the yacht. This was an audacious operation carried out by the US Postal Service. Steve Bannon was under arrest. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the arrest and unravelling of Steve Bannon. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Federal prosecutors have arrested and charged a former senior White House strategist. He's Steve Bannon. Bannon today busted on a yacht off the coast of Connecticut. And in yet another note of delicious irony, those doing the arresting were law enforcement officials with the U.S. Postal Service. Bannon was one of four individuals who were arrested in connection with this scheme. It was called We Build the Wall, an online fundraising scheme. It raised £25 million. It was supposedly non-profit, but these individuals were using the cash to line their own pockets. Steve Bannon stands accused of defrauding hundreds of thousands of people who donated more than $25 million to fund a private wall along the US-Mexico border. A charge he denies. But could this be his downfall? War Room. Pandemic. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. Welcome to War Room Pandemics, 21st of August, year of our Lord, 2020. We're live from the nation's capital. Within 24 hours of his dramatic arrest, Steve Bannon had somehow managed to put out another episode of his incendiary podcast, Bannon's War Room. But look, I, I am not going to back down. This is a political hit job. Everybody knows I love a fight. You know, I was called Honey Badger 
for many years. You know, Honey Badger doesn't give. So, you know, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm in this for the fight. I'm going to continue to fight. This was to stop and intimidate people that want to talk about the wall. This is to stop and intimidate people that have President Trump's back on building the wall. But it wasn't just Bannon's podcast that addressed the story. Every bit of what he'd call the mainstream media was riveted by the scandal. I'm Josh Glancy, Washington Bureau Chief for the Sunday Times, based in DC. Josh has charted the rise and fall, and fall again, of Steve Bannon for years. He's even met him. He's had this quite remarkable American life, really. It's, it's so interesting that he's such a big character in public life, uh, because he seemed to come out of nowhere a few years ago. I mean, what do we actually know about Steve Bannon? He was born into a working-class sort of Irish-American family in Virginia. He's a very bright guy. I mean, he really is, for all his strangeness. He joined the Navy and rose and had a successful career in the Navy, seven years. And then he went to work at Goldman Sachs, an odd choice for an economic populist, perhaps. But he <laughs> worked in M&A at Goldman Sachs. He was quite successful there, left as a vice president then formed his own little bank, and then his went own into little Hollywood, bank. really. Yeah, a little boutique bank called Bannon & Co. Um, How did that, that do? Did, I haven't seen the finances, but it, <laughs> it did quite well because it did sort of media advisory. One of the deals they negotiated was selling a media company to Turner Broadcasting System, which was owned by Ted Turner. Mm. Uh, to cut a long story short, this media company owned Seinfeld, which as you know, is one of the most lucrative gold mines in all of entertainment. Yeah. And, and instead of getting paid for the deal, Bannon took a stake in Seinfeld. So gets a little check every time an episode of Seinfeld is aired, which is pretty much every hour of every day. That's amazing. So, so every time we watch Seinfeld, Steve Bannon gets a little cut. He does indeed. I'm not quite sure how small a cut, but I think it's helped keep him afloat over the years. And, and again, it's sort of rather delicious irony in that Seinfeld is again a kind of bastion of New York liberal comedy and it's kind of what pays Bannon's bills. On he goes from there into media and then he starts to sort of gravitate into what you might call conservative media, making documentaries about Islam and about the Clintons and quite sort of scary political documentaries. And he gets involved with Breitbart through that. And that's really where he rises to prominence. And Breitbart is a you know, news media organisation out there on the right. And Breitbart is pretty fringe for most of the 2010s, but with the rise of kind of right-wing populism in the second half of that decade and the rise of Trump, suddenly Breitbart goes from a, a kind of fringe media organisation really to the heart of the American and, and in some ways British media for a point. So that's what elevates Bannon into the heart of the matter. I mean, how strong is Breitbart now? How influential is it? Well, in a funny way, once Trump got elected, Breitbart sort of bubble burst slightly. Bannon went off uh. to the White House and, you know, they still get lots of hits. They still operate on the margins of the media sphere, but they're not really running the agenda in some ways, partly because <laughs> Trump's in the White House. You know, a lot of Breitbart alums went to work for Trump in a way they sort of almost completed their task, which was to put Trump in the White House. And now he's you know, he's running at the bright part agenda, really. And in terms of, of Steve Bannon, I mean, he does become a force in the Republican movement, or perhaps beyond the Republican movement, more sort of in the right wing of politics. And some of that seems to be from the money associated with him. How does all of that come about? So back in, I think, 2011, 
Bannon becomes associated with the Mercer family, Robert and Rebecca Mercer. And Robert Mercer is a vastly wealthy hedge fund billionaire who is very right wing and is funding a lot of different right wing political causes. And one of, and, and so he starts backing Bannon uh, and backing Breitbart. Bannon goes very deep into the anti-Clinton world, what Hillary used to call the vast right wing conspiracy against her. Bannon worked on this book called Clinton Cash, which was all about the Clinton Foundation and alleged that they were misusing all the funds and it was a kind of big grift. And that became very influential in the 2016 election. And so the Mercers are his sort of main benefactors. The Mercers then become major Trump donors as well, when, you know, not a lot of people were necessarily funding Trump in 2016, but the Mercers were. Until 2018, the Mercers, I think, paid for pretty much everything Bannon was doing, including quite sort of lavish private security and, and private travel and all that sort of thing. And so suddenly they became sort of major players. And do we have any idea how much they paid for all this? What's the bill on an election like that? I, I don't, actually, but I think they, you know, they're tens of millions, if not more, they've spent. But Robert Mercer is worth several billion, so not enough to trouble his other expenses, I don't think. Just a dent. Exactly. How much of an influence was he in President Trump actually winning the election? How significant was Steve Bannon? That is a subject of some debate. Undoubtedly very significant. He came into the campaign in August 2016. Trump was at something of a nadir at the time in the polls. And Bannon helped turn it around. Trump was quite unfocused at the time. He's getting into a lot of scraps. You know, he gets into these kind of Twitter fights with people and stuff. Bannon managed to focus him on attacking Clinton, demeaning Clinton. And Bannon had this history of attacking Clinton. And... They had this material that they'd worked on, the Clinton cash book and others, and they just chucked as much mud as they could at Clinton for the two months of the campaign that remained. And some of it stuck. You're going to end up in World War III over Syria if we listen to Hillary Clinton. She's incompetent. Putin looks at her and he laughs, okay? If we're in a cyber world and she can't even handle her emails, how can she be president? Hillary Clinton is a weak person. Hillary Clinton is totally scripted. Hillary Clinton is a thief. Although people didn't necessarily love Trump and didn't vote for him in huge numbers, they really didn't like or trust Hillary either. And Bannon can take some credit for that. You know, he kind of kept Trump a little bit more focused down the stretch. He's a big character. He's a hugely sort of charismatic, belligerent guy. And Trump sort of treated him like an equal. He would listen to him. He would engage with him as a peer because he he recognised kind of the magnitude of Bannon's character. And so it sort of helped keep Trump a little bit more focused down the stretch in 2016. So he, he was a, a big force. He would probably see himself as the, as the key factor. I think Trump saw it rather differently. And in, in a sense, those were the seeds of Bannon's downfall because Trump didn't like the idea that anyone was giving Bannon any credit at all for his victory. And, and Bannon couldn't help but claim some of that credit himself. Did you, did you meet him at all? I met him the summer of 2018, just a few months after he'd left office and we did a big um, cover story for the Sunday Times magazine when I sort of spent a day with him and it was exhausting, fascinating. I was say, what was that like? Alarming. He, he's quite absorbing. I think in the piece I compared it to having a leaf blower sort of put in your face for three hours, but it's a torrent. Some of it's horrible, some of it's nasty, you know, and, and rude and he'll attack you at times, but it's all a bit of a performance. 
some of it's quite interesting you know if you talk to him about china and geopolitics or religious philosophy i mean he's a, he's a kind of intellectual omnivore you know he's a ferocious reader i mean a lot of it's for show but but he does he's fascinating to talk to but exhausting i think it's the most tired i've ever felt after an interview really i mean what did you do so did you spend a whole day with him what what happened so i went with him to the Breitbart Embassy, as he would call it, which is a townhouse in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where he sort of taken up residence. He doesn't actually own it. It did at the time belong to a sort of slightly shady Egyptian millionaire. Curious that sort of lives there. Yeah, I mean, there's endless kind of murky associations with Bannon. It's a kind of strange web. But he lives in residence there and has a sort of his nephew and various other kind of flunkies around him he was on a very strict diet at the time he's constantly battling with his weight so he was on this kind of smoothie diet and he kept having these kind of smoothies delivered to the table it's just a constant show it's constant motion he's on the phone oh i'm you know going to see salvini in italy oh i'm talking to warban in an hour you're gonna have to go then insulting you and then but but kind of trying to draw you in as well i mean it's just it's kind of mesmerizing in a way it sounds so intriguing i mean firstly did the smoothie diet do anything for his temper (laughs) <laughs> he seemed a lot calmer when he was outside the White House. Then at one point, you, you ask him a question he doesn't like and he sort of explodes at you. Well, you know, the Times are just a bunch of communists. It's like, well, I'm not sure we are. But, you know, it's one of those people that even when he's screaming at you, you, you sort of struggle to take it seriously. You know, it's part, of, it's part of the act, the performance that he's putting on. So I didn't, I didn't take it too personally. And when he said he was going to take a phone call from Viktor Orban and various other leaders across Europe, did you believe it or was that part of the show too? Certainly at the time he was because he was very new out the White House and he had a lot of power and influence at the time still. That has waned over the last couple of years. But yeah, I mean, he, he was someone who was the, a councillor. I mean, he was reportedly even talking to Boris Johnson at one point. He has been a councillor to conservative and right-wing politicians all over the world. He's very close with the Bolsonaros in Brazil. I mean, that's a real connection. So, you know, it's not all rubbish. With It's not all bluster with Bannon. He may have established himself as the whisperer to demagogues and nationalist strongmen everywhere. But his advice to President Trump was about to bring his star crashing down in America. In 2017, protests over race in Charlottesville brought a newly empowered far-right out onto the streets. It was a physical manifestation of the fears and prejudices that Breitbart and Bannon had been espousing for years. And when a white supremacist killed a peaceful protester, the world was stunned by the president's response. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. Trump got a huge amount of blowback from Charlottesville from really a lot of supporters, a lot of CEOs were on the phone to him and and Bannon was seen as really the person who sort of pushed Trump to be unapologetic. So Bannon took kind of the heat for that. But I also think it was just becoming untenable and a lot of senior Trump advisors were telling him, look, You've got to get Bannon out of there. It's just not it's just not gonna work. I mean there were moments when Steve Bannon did seem to talk about President Trump as almost a useful idiot. Undoubtedly. I mean he he I mean he thinks of himself as far smarter than Trump. You know, he he's the sort of brains and Trump is the instrument, is how he sort of perceives it. There was a point 
where Bannon was on the cover of Time magazine and he was running the White House and he sort of started to think of himself as the bigger force than Trump. But he's been rather humbled since then. So he's always been careful not to malign Trump in public. Uh, unlike, I should add, Trump's children, who Bannon has been rude about, and that was his real downfall. Moments ago, the president continued his barrage on Steve Bannon, saying, quote, the Mercer family recently dumped the leaker known as Sloppy Steve Bannon. They have signaled a severing of ties with the former White House chief strategist, Rebecca Mercer, saying in a rare statement that she and her family do not support Bannon's recent actions and state. I was really interested in your description of what it was like to interview Steve Bannon and how he'd sort of insult you and insult the media and still sort of want to engage regardless. Because actually, it sounds a lot like an interview I've just done with Sebastian Gorka. It's the same playbook, clearly. I mean, can, can you tell us a bit about the relationship between the two? Yeah, I mean, Bannon, Bannon and Gorka, I mean, Bannon's a, a sort of bigger and more impressive character than Gorka, but they're, they're sort of somewhat cut from the same cloth really, both sort of quite, quite sort of physically imposing, very pro-Trump, very interested in kind of European populism, both see themselves as intellectuals, somewhat, you know, sort of swaggering, right-wing intellectuals. Both went into the White House and were quickly booted out again. <laughs> I mean, Gorka didn't last too long either. Neither necessarily cut out for government, but both very good on the radio and, and both have kind of pro-Trump radio shows. So they're you know, they're very much operating, swimming in the same sort of waters in what you might call Trump world rather than the actual administration. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. When Steve Bannon set up a strategy group in the White House, he turned to an old friend. Sebastian Gorka, former strategist of President Trump and host of America First. Are you, are you back with Mr. Trump now for the election? He just nominated me and uh, appointed me to the National Security Education Board, but I'm, I'm still doing my daily radio show. That's going to keep you very busy in the next couple of months. I wanted to ask you a bit about... Um, your old colleague, Steve Bannon. Firstly, can you, can you tell me a bit about Breitbart and what it was set up to do? You, really? You, you don't have Google available to you? <laughs> no, I just... You're, you're asking just, me what the most influential conservative website in the world is? I, I'm asking you what the purpose was when you said when it was set up as opposed to that's what, that's what it's a become. a question, right? It, it is because it's about your purpose when it was being set up and, and what, what the intention was rather than what it is now. Well, if, if you've literally been in a cave for the last 15 years, I'll tell you. 
Breitbart was set up by Andrew Breitbart to break the monopoly of the fake news industrial complex, people who have lied to the world for far too long. But if you want to ask questions that basic, you may want to do your research before we continue this this interview, because it seems a little bit of a waste of your listeners' time. Most people on the planet know what Breitbart is. How significant do you think Steve Bannon has been to American politics? Given the fact that in 2016, the presidential candidate, Donald Trump, was down 16 points and uh, Steve managed to close the gap and bring us a victory, he has a historic role to play and did. President Trump seems very keen to distance himself from, from Steve Bannon now. Um, can, can you understand that? Totally, yeah. I can. Steve, Steve Bannon made some very importune comments about the president's son. So there's no love lost between them. But I'm not sure why you're fixating on Steve Bannon. He's not, he's not, a, he's not an influence in this election. What did you make of the news of his arrest? Uh, well, I read the indictment, all 23 pages of it, and I found it very telling that the man who started this charity, uh, Build the Wall, Brian Colfage, they have chapter and verse against him. It clearly looks as if that man committed crimes with, with the money that he raised. But I find it very telling also that the FBI refused to touch that issue with a, with a barge pole. It was the Postal Service and the, the Southern District of New York Prosecutor's Office, which is notoriously left wing, that brought the case. I think, I think you know, crimes were committed, but I think the case against Steve is on very, very tenuous ground. And as a result, I think Steve probably, if he has a good lawyer, uh, doesn't have that much to worry about. But it, I, think, I think it looks as if Colfage did something wrong, but this was used as, a, as an opportunity to do a political hit job against Steve Bannon. I mean, it does look rather than a political not interested hit in job as, as, as a common crime. I'm not interested in talking about Steve Bannon. But you, you were very close colleagues for, for years. I worked for him at, at Breitbart, and, and I, he was the chief strategist in the White House when I was there. But he, he's, not a, he's not relevant right now in terms of election politics or in terms of geostrategies. How much do you think his arrest might influence the election? Uh, zero influence. But you said he, he influenced the last election to the point where he turned it around for, for President Trump. I'm done with the interview if you want to talk about Steve Bannon. He's he's an old friend of I, yours. I'm literally, I'll, I'm done. Is is he a difficult subject for this election? If you'd like to ask me about something else, we can we can talk about another subject. There are lots of accusations of of Trump corruption. Do you worry that one day you may regret the association? You you're very concerned about what I'm worried about. I am. Yeah, but you needn't be. I, I, I'm not worried about my association with a man who has given everything for this nation. I sleep very well at night. Thank you. Glad to hear it. Sebastian Gorka, thank you very much for talking to us. You're most welcome. Things go a little wrong for Bannon in the US. The, the Michael Wolff book comes out. He's exiled from Trump world. He, he, his political ambitions fall foul when he tries to get Roy Moore, um, who was accused of um, sleeping with underage women, elected in Alabama. And he manages oh, wow. to lose that Alabama Senate seat to a Democrat, which is, you know, Democrats shouldn't be winning Senate seats in Alabama, according to the normal laws of political gravity. So he becomes a bit of a, 
I don't want to say joke in Republican in, in, in American politics, but he becomes a bit of a outsider. He doesn't really have the power anymore. He doesn't have Trump's backing. Ousted from the White House, Steve Bannon looked for influence elsewhere. He was already vice president of Cambridge Analytica, a firm he'd founded with his backer, Robert Mercer, and which claimed to be able to win elections anywhere in the world. Now, Bannon created The Movement, a network of right-wing nationalist parties all over Europe. He advised Marine Le Pen in France. Matteo Salvini in Italy. Victor Orban in Hungary was a supporter and Nigel Farage was a close friend in Britain. One of the issues that disappeared off the radar of British politics was immigration. Steve Bannon was even said to be advising Boris Johnson during this period. And then he decided to set up the monastery in Italy to breed a new generation of far-right leaders. Bannon wants to turn it into a kind of elite university or training ground almost for kind of Catholic conservative. He, he described it as a gladiator school for culture warriors. It's to give people kind of in mid-career that are looking to do something different, maybe get involved in media, maybe get involved in politics, maybe get involved in NGOs, to give them kind of the underpinnings of the Judeo-Christian West, kind of what the values are, what we stand for. And also in modern media, we call it a, a modern gladiator school. So we'll kind of teach the, the, the ins and outs of how to be a honey badger right, in modern media. And so the idea was that you would sort of train people in the, in the philosophies of, of Bannon and, and others and turn them loose on the world to kind of um, impose that ideology. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't pay their rent and they were supposed to do up this monastery and they didn't do the maintenance work on it and the whole thing sort of fell flat as a pancake, really. His ventures don't always go to plan not least the project to raise private money to build President Trump's wall with Mexico. So will his arrest really matter now? He does still play a role in sort of Trump world, advising some of his close associates are on the Trump campaign still. So he's still kind of feeding in. He claims he occasionally still speaks to Trump. But this arrest is very, very serious because this group that they started was called We, we Build the Wall in late 2018. And Bannon, along with this guy, Brian Colfage, a military veteran, and a couple of others, started this crowdfunding website. It was a GoFundMe to raise money to basically privately build part of the border wall uh, on the border with Mexico. And they raised a lot of money. They got a lot of backing. They were on Fox News. They got um, a lot of media interest on the right. And they raised $25 million dollars. What Bannon and Colfage and the others are accused of is wire fraud and money laundering. They allegedly took some of this money, ran it through a shell company and then spent it on themselves. This is according to the indictment. Bannon is accused of taking a million dollars or so or more even and spending it at least partially on his own living expenses. Was a crowdfunding campaign meant to raise money from private donors to help build a border wall. Instead, according to prosecutors, it paid for things like jewelry, travel, a boat, a luxury SUV. If that's true, then it's fraudulent um, because it was a non-profit organization and there's a very serious prison sentence now hanging over his head. So obviously 
if he goes to prison for 30 years, well, yes, then he is very diminished. But even if he doesn't, I think, I think this probably does signify a pretty major downturn in his fortunes because, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. It's a very seedy scam. And obviously, if he gets off, then he can claim victory and, and try and rehabilitate himself. And I no doubt he would. But the whole thing's just doesn't come off well. It all sounds a bit sort of low rent and desperate, really. So we'll obviously see what happens with the case. But he's in trouble. There's no doubt about that. I think it's a, a very sad thing for Mr. Bannon. I think it's uh, surprising. I didn't like that project. I thought that was a project that was being done for showboating reasons. I don't know that he was in charge. I didn't know any of the other people either. But it's, uh, it's sad. It's very sad. And just finally, you know the man. Even with such serious charges hanging over him, I mean, would you write him off? Is this the end of Steve Bannon? Look, as someone who the media is that interested in, who's such a known figure, you know, will crop up again. He'll write a book at some point. You know, we will always hear from Steve Bannon because he always wants to be heard from. been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Washington Bureau Chief for the Sunday Times, Josh Glancy. If you subscribe to the Times online, you can read more of Josh's work on the American election and Steve Bannon. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. The producer today was Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the podcast. You can subscribe so that you never miss an episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and the Times Radio app. See you tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.